And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Nicola Griffith on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back in rhythm because this is the first time for those of you who haven't been listening for whatever reason, first time that Jonathan has returned us to the Coot Street Motel 6 after taking a vacation for some reason. But at any rate, um, we are within days, I guess, of... Nicola, of your novel, Spear, a novella. Is it a novella? Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a short, it's a book. It's a short novel or let's call it a noveling. I mean, it's longer than a novella. Um, so it's it's novel. too long to be it's a short novel. I mean, any of the awards, you know, novella, official novella awards. But um, it really is too short to be a novel. So yeah. I just call it a book. <laughs> I think I, I'm perfectly content thinking of it as a short novel. I mean, I, th I think the obsession with novelette, novella, and that sort of thing is largely a genre thing. Um, I don't think you you don't see the old man and the sea described as a novella, but it's shorter than Spear. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. So it's you're absolutely right. It's a book, and it's a book that's about to be published any day now. Uh, it's got an April date of publication. What's the exact date? The exact date is Tuesday, April the 19th, so in 17 days. Aha. Uh -huh. And so tell, tell us, where, where, where does the journey to Spear begin? I mean, I know it's leaping around, but I know what Spear is. The audience is, uh, uh, doesn't yet know, uh, the creature audience. Where did it begin? <laughs> Oof. It, it began, it has little, be it's like a river, right? So if you imagine Spear as the Amazon, it belongs on the leaf of this tree here where this drop falls. It belongs <laughs> on this mountainside here where this rivulet begins. It's It begins everywhere. I can't say here is the definitive beginning. It's, um, it's a small book, mm -hmm. but it has a lot of feeders. So I think I, I became interested in all things Arthurian through basically my interest in reading. I mean, like many kids, my, my first story experiences were stories read to me, told to me by my mum. And then when I started um, trying to find stories for myself, it was mythology, Greek mm -hmm. and Roman myth. And ever since then, I, I've always just loved stories about quote, the old days, unquote, and especially stories where people whack each other's heads off with swords. <laughs> you know, swords and, sword and pony fiction, basically. Um, and then I think I was probably about nine. I'm guessing. I really don't hmm. know. When, when I, I discovered uh, maybe a kid's version, maybe a grown-up illustrated version of Mallory, and that, that was amazing to me. It was just all this heroism and gorgeous women and people being brave and swords and then this mystical grail stuff. Um, and, then, and then strange things happening for no apparent reason. I, I, there's, there's so much of, of the basic Arthur story that makes no sense. Um, <laughs> it's not really supposed to, I don't think, but... Yeah. For a kid, it's perfect because so much of life is a mystery already when you're a kid. But behind 
all that for me with with Arthur and it, it comes from many of the same places that Hilt comes from actually mm-hmm. is this urge to to live in a world without the stink of pollution <laughs> um, and the noise the constant noise of traffic of planes and dogs barking and so on and so forth I mean the fact is is that you would be swapping all that industrial effluvia back then for the nasty smells. I was going to say there were smells then as well. (laughs) I'm sure. But it it was, you know, use your imagination. It's a poetic license, right? And, of course, the minute you get away from small groups of people, you're away from that smell. I mean, even Mm. cows smelt different then because they didn't eat the same kind of silage that they now they're – and the stink of their manure was quite different. So, one of the striking say- moments uh, in Spears, uh, there are many striking moments in it. But one of which I simply hadn't thought of. You have what is a name, an, 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 initially a nameless young girl raised in the wild who encounters her first village, and it's a description of what it's like to see a village when you've never seen groups of people gathered together for any reason at all. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not an experience. I don't know if I've even seen that experience described before, but she's kind of overwhelmed by the sensory overload that she gets with, with groups of people living together, which is entirely new to her. It's a wonderful sense of discovery. Yeah, I mean, when she's probably about eight or nine, she sees her first people that yeah. are her mother. And that's astounding to her. She has to work out why they look not like her or, or not mm-hmm. like her mother. And then, of course, she goes on and, and goes to a medium-sized steading where there's like 15 people. And to her, that's like <gasps> metropolis. Yes. And then she gradually, she's like a, a frog in a pot of boiling water, right? It just gets yeah. warmer and warmer and she doesn't really notice. But it, you know, it, she, she really does start as this unnamed character, basically, or semi-named character growing up in what to her is something of an idyll and a refuge, even though it's not that for her mother. It's her and her mother in this isolated, natural location, and she is part of the world and landscape around her. And that seems a lot of the founding of the character is that sense of being in the Welsh hills, which I think is basically where it's set, um, and being isolated with nature. That seems to be the thing. Yeah, I mean... um... Peritia, as she becomes known, really is, she sees herself completely as herself because she has no one to compare herself to except the elm tree and the ducks and the lynx and the deer and the lambs and the caves and the weather. So she considers herself as much a natural force as sure. as those things are. And I actually think it's one of the miraculous things about her is that because she grows up without comparisons, she never has to feel different or mm. less. She just feels perfectly herself. She also has an unusual level, without going too much into spoiling a story, an unusual level of communication with the natural world around her, which would, I assume, reinforce that. Mm-hmm. Very much. Yeah, and in this sense, it was great fun. It was just like Hild 
in the sense mm-hmm. that she gets so much information from nature. But rather than it being um, purely explainable intellectually, um, it's not. And that's the difference between fantasy and historical fiction. I was going to say it's the difference between her and, and Hill because, but it's, maybe you're, we're saying the same thing in two different ways. Mm-hmm. The opening pages of Hill, she almost reminded me of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, her her power of observation, her drawing. She was a she was a, a scientist without knowing it, of course. Mm-hmm. And and you're right. Uh, Perder's way of dealing with the world is different from that. She's she's not analytical. She's just awash in whatever experience comes by her. She's wholly embodied. She's yes. she's wholly visceral. That that's her whole approach to the world is through her senses. But you were originally, there was going to be, I guess there is, um, a couple of points I want to touch, which we've talked about before. There, there was an anthology of uh, alternative Arthurian stories, which is now out. And I think our mutual friend Maria Devana Headley has a story in this collection. And mm-hmm. Jonathan is holding That's it up good. so all of you listening to us can see. Thank you very much, Jonathan. These people are not on video. <laughs> But, um, and, and yeah. th- this started out as a contribution for that? It did, yes. Um, Jen Northington, one of the editors, emailed me and said, we are putting together this collection of queer Arthurian retellings, like mm-hmm. basically race-bent and gender-bent Arthurian retellings. It can be set in the past, the future, or the present. And are you interested? And I said, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a bit. I mean, I love Arthuriana, but it's such uh, such well trodden ground, and mm. it's such a difficult story to break uh, the tropes of. I mean, it has such set things that you're supposed to hit. Mm-hmm. I just thought, nope, I'm not going to do that. So I said no, and I went back to Meanwood, and um, and then I got another email saying, "You just, you know, are you sure?" And I was about to say no when I suddenly had this picture in my head. And and it was this woman on a bony horse, really tatty, broken armor, and um, clearly making men do gear and looking a bit, not lost exactly, but not that happy. And I thought, now what is this about? Mm. And she had a red spear. And, and so I immediately started to think about the Percival story. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? That that might be a way in. There's something about this. It was clearly early medieval mm. just by her gear. So it was before all the romance writers got hold of it, basically before um, Chrétien. You know? mm-hmm. So I, I could leave out some of that stuff. Um and I, I just started to get this notion. I didn't want to examine it too closely because mm. it mm-hmm. beginnings are very delicate things, um, to quote June, you know. <laughs> um, and so I said, you know, I think I might be able to do something. Leave it with me and um, set it aside, went back to Meanwood and honestly completely forgot about it. I just completely forgot. And then one day I had email again from Jen saying, uh, so the story's <laughs> due tomorrow. 
And I said, uh, you're right. It is. Give me two weeks and I will get you that story. And <laughs> I put Meanwood aside, opened a document called Red, and just began. Yeah. And I thought it would probably be a bit longer than 10,000 words. I was thinking maybe 12. And mm -hmm. so I checked. Once I wrote the first two pages and I thought, oh, I can feel the length of this. So I said, is it going to be okay if it runs just a little bit long? And she said, oh, yeah, no, great. We're coming in a bit short. So this that would be perfect. I said, great, it's going well. And then silence for six days. And then I wrote back and said, well, Jen, Jen, it's already um, it's already a novella. Um, I just, uh, I don't know how you feel about this because anthology. She said, well, you know, if it's just, you know, maybe 18,000, we could cope. I said, well, hmm, give me another day. <laughs> and then I wrote, I said, Jen, Jen is already 30,000 words uh, and it's still growing. And so I'm so sorry. Here's your money back. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> And then there was a flurry of emails and Maria agreed to step in and write a story. Thank God for Maria. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I just kept going. And in just a few days after that, it took me 17 days to write the first draft. So, yeah, 17 days till Spear comes out from today. And mm -hmm. uh, 17 days to write the first draft. Uh, and the first draft was probably 30 six or seven thousand words but i was really i wanted to get back to meanwood so i just put that mm -hmm. draft aside and went bang straight back into meanwood and i was so fired up from the spear experience that mm -hmm. meanwood just roared so i was going back and forth i was working frantically on meanwood and then i would whenever i got to a slowish place i would go back to spear and think about it and tweak some things and add a couple of thousand words. And then eventually it was done. And I sent it to my agent saying, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do with it. Here you go. And she sent it to Sean, my editor at FSG that, uh, for our Strauss and Giroux. And um, he said, well, you know, it's, it's cool, but it's not really our sort of thing. And yeah. I said, no. Um, and so then Macmillan came to this arrangement where their two imprints, FSG and Tor.com, would work together and um, do the book. So so FSG did all the editorial work mm -hmm. and uh, Tor.com's doing all the production, marketing, publicity, and they are doing a bang-up job. I'm yeah. really impressed. Yeah, I work with them. Um was it at all like doing So Lucky, which is the only other thing in terms of size that seems like a, a, a thing that you've done? No. Nothing. <laughs> okay, well, that, that ends that. It's like... <laughs> the Excuse only, me. actually, the, the, the similarity is that I wrote the first draft of So Lucky in about three weeks. Yeah. And, again, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I I thought for a while I would publish that as, as a tour.com you know, a, a standard-sized Tor.com novella. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, actually, my editor, Sean, said, oh, no, 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 we want that. I'm like, mm, okay, I don't – okay. And so <laughs> then they published it as kind of autobiographical fiction, which it kind of isn't 
and and the whole thing I I don't know. I think honestly it would have been better off published by tour.com in a in a particular yeah. way. Yeah. So I mean when you look at your bibliography, when you look at the history of your work, right? You're you're this young reader who has loved Arthuriana for years and many, many other things, of course. And you come to start writing, you write Ammonite, you write Slow River, you write the odd novels. Is Hild the bridge that lets you write something like Spear? Because the other books seem quite different in many ways. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think Hild was... Hilt was the thing that brings everything together in a particular way. It's mm-hmm. or Spear is what brings everything together. Spear really is a a return to to many things at once. I mean, if you if you look at the protagonists of my fiction, um, from Oud onwards, they're very tall, very physically competent women. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so part of my writing brain seems to be settling on this thing. And then with Hild, it's all about nature. And um, so is Spear. And it's, uh, I, I think, I think I'm just beginning. It's taken me a long time. But I think I'm just beginning to figure out how to write everything I want at once instead of splitting it into exploring different nooks. Yeah. I think I've explored enough corners now that now I know what the central room is and I'm, I'm ready hmm. to go. Yeah. I'm well, even, even, even Spear, as short as it is, seems to move through a number of different genres in a fairly quick amount of time as I, We've talked about it. it begins as a kind of nature idol, and it becomes uh, very efficiently turns into a buildings roman. And we find about her, she learns to stick fight. She learns how to deal with society. She decides to go. I'm not going to spoil anything when I decide she. I mentioned she decides to go join the Arthurian court because that's pretty much part of the background. But then mm-hmm. by the end, it's a flat-out suspense novel. And as uh, somebody, when we were talking about it on uh, this podcast a few months ago, somebody said. Yeah, she writes mysteries too. I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's. Uh, I, I was. Who was I saying it to? It might have been you, Gary. I don't know. But I was. I was saying to someone a little while ago that that is that both. Um, so lucky and. Um, Spear, that they're they're, if you think of them musically, they're kind of boleros. They start slow, okay, yeah, and then they build and they build and they build and they and then they just fling you out at the top. They don't. I, I would have don't. thought the I would have thought the opening of Smetana's The Moldau, which starts with little trickles of river and uh, trickles of water that turn into a river that turn into the ocean. The first twenty, the first ten minutes of that composition is great. Then it gets boring. But the sense of expansion is very visceral in Spear. That this, mm-hmm. this, the story expands at an almost dizzying rate when you look at how much has happened in a short space of time. Yeah, as one review put it, it's like, wow, she wraps up the whole 
Percival story, the whole Grail quest, the Merlin Nimue story, the Lancelot Guinevere Arthur story, the all all the etc. etc. All yeah, of yeah. this whole thing. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it was there. That's what happens when you let something just hang out and mutate in the back of your brain for fifty years, which is pretty <laughs> In the afterward to Spear, you talk about the nature of the characters in the book. You talk about the uh, representation in the book and how modern narratives have decentered characters and people that had that were in the original narrative. You build a story that doesn't have language for those for, for those kind of people in some ways, and yet they are there. How important to this story and for you was was it to do that and to show a world maybe where there wasn't language and concept appearing to limit and uh, contain uh, characters, people in the story they were in. Uh, very important in some ways and not important at all in others, in the sense that this is what my work does. Mm. Um, my work, and I wrote my PhD thesis on this, my work norms the other. The title of my thesis is uh, Norming the Other, Narrative Empathy via Focalized Heterotopia. Mm -hmm. And what that means basically is persuading the reader that these characters who are not really like them are exactly like them. So that difference just is just a human thing. Um, Being queer or straight, it's like, do you have blue eyes or brown eyes? Sure. Um, being disabled or non-disabled is like, can you run a hundred meters in ten seconds, or does it take you a couple of minutes? You know, it's <laughs> yeah, it's that level of difference. It, it just that people are people. So, yeah. yeah, in that sense, it it was. It's a requirement now of what I write. And I think that's why I feel so sometimes kind of uncomfortable about So Lucky because it's it's the one story of mine, whether we're talking short story or book, that doesn't norm the other. Disability is – the book is about disability. Yeah. Whereas all my other books, they're not about being a woman or about being queer or about being disabled or – or any of the other differences that people have. it. But So Lucky is about that. Mm. So I feel mm, mixed Listen, about yeah. that. I guess what I was struck by was that for Peritier, Peritier's experience prior to leaving the uh, you know, her home for the first time is that all of human life is basically what her mother looks like and what she looks like, and so she doesn't think about that at all. And she goes Mm -hmm. out into this world and she carries that view and never feels at all as though, and I think it's an important part of the story, an important thing, never feels like she needs to explain to herself or anybody else why she is how she is. That seems to be a fundamental part of her and of the story and what's being done here. That it's just, that is how it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of her, one of her blessings really is that, she she does not grow up with comparisons and she's not raised by wolves exactly but you know her mother never worried about 
sit with your legs together, dear, or or look demure. I mean, none of that. None of that. I mean, her mother was concerned about never being found. That's all that mattered yeah, yeah. to her mother. Yeah. Everything else was a detail. And so, mm. you know, Peritia kind of grew up with this notion of not being seen unless she chose to be seen, mm-hmm. but not mm. from any urge to... Uh, to, to hide because of who she is, but just because, just assess the situation, see what's mm. what. But, you know, having said all that, that is to to an extent, um, I wouldn't say it's how I grew up exactly, but it, I feel it's kind of how I turned out. I, I was from a family, a big family, all girls, and um, my mother was worked very hard and um we grew up in, in two different pods basically the older three girls who got the serious catholic training you know how mm. sit up straight turn sideways yeah. put your knees together you mustn't even wear patent leather shoes in case boys can see your underwear in the shoe. really oh really oh no, no there there is seriously there is a catholic memoir of a young man growing up in chicago the title of which is Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? And I always thought that was a myth that this guy made up. Nope, not a myth. Um, there was actually a little pamphlet uh, that was given out to Catholic girls and a picture of the Virgin Mary on front looking very demure. And it was basically, it was meant to be the birds and the bees book, right? The sex education book, but it was Catholic. So it would say things like, now girls have hair on their private parts because they are to remain private. And that's it. That's the explanation. (laughs) The logic is unassailable. Yeah. Unassailable. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so my, my older sisters were subjected to that. And my mum tried with me, but I was already a bit wild by the time she got around to trying mm. to do this to me. And it kind of rolled off my back, um, like water off a duck's back. And I grew up thinking everything I ever did was perfectly fine and normal. Mm-hmm. Being a dyke was normal. Wanting to drink at age 13 was normal. Smoking at age nine was normal. It was just that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And else can, they're just wrong. I was, I felt, <laughs> I felt absolutely unassailable actually in this way. It's like as long as um, I don't actually get punished for something, then I'm good. <laughs> did the story that you ended up with? Did it feel like where you were going when you started, or did it surprise you along the way? Hmm. I wasn't entirely sure where I was going when I started. I had some notions. I mean, I I knew that part of what I wanted to do was to bring together um, history and legend and myth. And I knew the Too Hard Day and therefore treasures were going to be mixed in there. But did I know how it would end? Mm. I really, I know, I, I really didn't. But as soon as I could see it coming, I thought, oh, yeah, this is the way. That lovely springboard ending, that. 
fly up. One, one of the things, uh, well, this was uh, a panel which you'd suggested at this little miniature ICFA back um, last fall, that, uh, that, all, and that all Arthurian fiction is essentially fan fiction. I mean, to some extent, that oh, was sure. the point we were making. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, you have this enormous weight of uh, other fiction, none of which is particularly reliable. The only Mallory is simply putting together things which he's heard and Jeffrey. But it strikes me that you're dealing with a similar historical period and, and, and a reasonably similar geographical area in Hild and in Spear. But Spear has this massive weight of... of um, of history, of tradition, of literature behind it. And Hill has almost none. As far as I know, there are, there are a handful of fragmentary mentions of her. So on the one hand, you're completely in a history which you have to discover. And on the other hand, you're in this history which is weighted down by seven centuries of people rewriting it and reimagining it. Uh, does, does that give you a sense of disjuncture? On the one hand, there's too much Arthurian material. On the other hand, you're completely free with Hill to sort of create that world? Hmm, no, I, I really didn't think about it that way. I mean, for me, if you look at Arthur, uh, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, when I was about 18 or 19, I lived in a very depressed and depressing city where everybody, there was 25% unemployment and um, I was mixing with a crowd of people who were not exactly upstanding citizens and <laughs> and none of the people I knew had any money. And by, by no money, I mean like we didn't have phones, we didn't have TVs, we didn't have heat, we, we had no money. And so my notion of entertainment back in the day was to score a lump of hash take this glass globe that uh, we dairied, you know, skip, skip diving, basically we'd rescued this globe and put a candle under it, light the candle, put on Hawkwind and get absolutely wasted. <laughs> so, you know, and then the candle would ebb, the light would wax and wane you know it would start dying and then it would suck the oxygen in and it would glow bright again so it was like a really cheap uh pyrotechnics right my idea of fun back in the day <laughs> and i think arthurian fiction is like that it it gathers this weight of reinterpretation and then it collapses under its own weight and becomes new again and then it it someone rediscovers it and rewrites it and then it starts accreting all these barnacles again and then it collapses well before it collapses that's when things get cynical that's when you get you know like the murdering people and the serious incest and then it collapses yeah. again and then you get the fresh, bright author again. Um, and so I, m my personal feeling, I'm just making this up, right? You do get that. <laughs> this is not <laughs> a long held theory. I'm making it up as I drink my beer and talk to you. Um, I suspect that what's been happening lately is that Arthur as the pseudo-historical figure, so, so the historical figure of 
um, Henry Treese and uh, Bernard Cornwell has absolutely reached its end and it has collapsed. And now we're ready for this brand new Arthur. Mm-hmm. Uh, brand new, not so much Arthur, because honestly, I don't much care about Arthur. What I care about is Camelot. Mm-hmm. This notion of of this, it's not a time, it's not a place, it's a state of mind. This place where people fight for what's good and right and clean and bright. Um and they fight not for power for themselves, not for power over others, but the power to help the world be better. And um, and for me, that, of course, really requires real people, mm. not just a straight, white, non-disabled, manly man of, of noble birth. It needs real people. I mean, there have been queer people, people of color, disabled people since well since they've been people yeah so why shouldn't we be part of why shouldn't we be in this heroic past we've always been told doesn't belong to us in fact why shouldn't we be the heroes of that heroic past so that's part of what i'm doing and i may have lost track of the actual question (laughs) no the the argument is very good but the the, the norm in, in a sense to go back to your dissertation title, norming the other, norming also means not necessarily making heroes. It means making background characters. It means making characters. There are characters uh, in Spear who we realize are disabled. But you're right. In that world, the concept of disability wasn't really the way we think of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody would, would um, as far as I know, I mean, this is all as far as we know, right? Sure. We don't actually know how people regarded queer people back in the day. We have some notions, but we don't really know. So, and people didn't think about, did you like girls or did you like boys? What they thought about was, were you on top or were you on the bottom? Mm. It was more about power relations than who you had the power relationship with. Do you think there's something intrinsic to Camel, and maybe what you were just talking about, about it being a place where you go for, to, to fight for what is good and right for people is the answer to this question. But do you think there's something about the story particularly that is unique or intrinsic to it that brings people back to it again and again? Or does yes, it just happen to be the story that, that we have? No, I, I think it's intrinsic to the story itself. I mean, the, the, the clue really is in the whole one, once and future king thing mm-hmm. it is a once and future it's it's a story of um well it's that whole ontology and eschatology thing it, it it's one of my pet theories i have many <laughs> they don't they don't all really uh, fit together but one of my pet theories is that arthur actually began as the manifestation of a pan celtic deity and so in that sense is very like a Christ figure mm-hmm. that that uh, the God appears on earth and and tries to do their best. And then, of course, they can't change everything. And so they die. And in their death, they create the conditions for the rebirth 
of a new cycle. Mm-hmm. It's just like the most ancient stories, really, of, of winter followed by spring. It, it's the whole natural cycle, and it's but it's so beautifully encapsulated in these people, and and the weight of what they're trying to do and how you can't ever be perfect. And so the small imperfections accumulate and so it all collapses. And But that creates the fertile ground for it all to begin again. So, yeah, I, I do think the whole uh, notion of Camelot is, I think it's brilliant. I think it's one of the classic human stories. Although one of the things that... Uh... That, well, mo- one of many traditions that has co-opted parts of the Camelot myth is Christianity. And the way you handle the Christers, I guess, in, in this. <laughs> I, my, one of my favorite scenes is when somebody is trying to explain to Peridor how Christian prayer works. And it, I hope that was meant to be a funny scene because I thought, oh, I'd never thought about Christian, <laughs> I'd never thought about that, Christian that, prayer. That's when Lance... You know when Chandler oh, yeah. is, is yeah. explaining, he's like, "Well, you know, maybe, yeah, except maybe not. I don't know how that part works." But then, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they just ask this invisible person for something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe they get it. Maybe so they then Parity thinks, "Well, yeah, maybe I'm a saint." Yeah, <laughs> <because of> that. <laughs> right. She Thanks makes the true. Yeah. But I mean, the, the the serious subtext of that is there there is this Christian thing which is about to take over whole segments of the Arthurian story, mm-hmm. and the Grail is part of that. And then you borrowed some of that's the other thing we should mention. You're you're borrowing Irish mythology. I guess there's Welsh mythology. You're sort of pulling in beliefs from all over the British Isles into this one mm-hmm. story. Not to mention uh, the setting in Wales, which to me seemed more believable. One of the things I notice in historical novels is can I, if I want to, follow it on a map? And I could figure out pretty much what was going on in this, even though I don't know Wales very all, at all well. And in many other Arthurian stories, you're just kind of vaguely somewhere in Glastonbury. Uh, and that's all. <laughs> yeah, except many of the people who write these things don't even really know what Glastonbury is or well, what yeah. it's like. Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it's actually one of the banes of my life as a reader is is this vague, no-place fiction. Yeah. Mm. Generic setting. I hate that. I like to be really specific. Even if it's a made-up place, it has to be really specific. Mm-hmm. It, what, it is one of the attractions of, of, of the story of Arthur, of Arthuriana that it's so deeply shared as well that it allows you to have all kinds of efficiencies in the story because you can rely on the, the reader to know what you're talking about as it on, as your story unfolds as well. So, I mean, Spear is a very efficient story. It's, we've talked about it, it's not a long story at all. If some things had probably had to be, been explicated in greater depth, you would have to have made a, a longer and different kind of a story. So is the fact that it is such a deeply culturally shared thing one of the things that also makes it valuable and worthwhile for a storyteller like yourself? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think I've had two different readers tell me that they got, uh, one reader said she got two-thirds of the way through it before she even realised it was an Arthurian retelling. Um, 
because I, I think there are some people who are only familiar with Arthur um, as, as very English and mm-hmm. not particularly Welsh. So they didn't really recognize the names. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I personally think that, that I could change all the names in that story. And uh, it would essentially be the same story. And having said that, almost everything drags resonance behind it. Uh, and, and so it will have all these echoes for readers, depending on what they have read. Um, so someone who hasn't read any Arthuriana at all will have a completely different experience to someone who's read all of it or someone who's only read the Welsh stuff or only read the English stuff mm. or only seen the American films. I mean, each of those people will bring a whole different color, a whole different tint to the story. And so so what I've written will interact with that. Mm. How, what has the experience been like publishing it? I mean, you mentioned that um, you know, it was, it's been a good experience going to Tor.com, but there is this, frankly, beautiful book coming out in a couple of weeks. What was, how was it seeing it go from your manuscript at the publishing house to a, 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 a thing that exists, it's going into the world, and it has also pulled you into being the reader for the audiobook of it? Um. Let me talk about the physical object itself first. Uh, I still haven't seen it. Okay. I have not oh, I really? haven't seen the finished copy. I saw a photo of it on Instagram yesterday, and I'm like, <gasps> is that it? Is that the actual thing? I can't wait to get my hands on it. So I haven't seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, the arc, it's lovely. And the interior illustrations. Mm-hmm. I'm just, yeah. I am so pleased. I mean, I, yeah. I thought actually to have Rovina be the the, the artist. Um, I was introduced to her work actually when she sent me email um, maybe seven years ago. She uh, Her art class, her instructor had um, given everyone cold wind to illustrate mm-hmm. my tour.com story. And so... She had done this illustration. She said, I thought you might like to see it. And it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. It was an, I thought, oh, wow. I wish the story had been illustrated by you. <laughs> and so when this came up, um, they were saying, so, you know, do you have any notion of artists? I said, yep, I want Ravina Kai. And they said, well, we were actually thinking about this person. I'm like, nope, I want Ravina. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Jonathan did Ravina. She did the cover for the book of um... – Dragon. Dragon. Yeah, she did. She was one of the most beautiful book covers I saw last year, and it's mm-hmm. it just is stunning work. So we should, yes, definitely mention the illustrations, which I assume will be a little different in the finished copy from in the arc. Uh, um, no, they'll be essentially the same, except well, I mean printed. I mean printed differently because I, I'm assuming. That, yeah, yeah, they'll um, they'll be they'll be nicer. They'll be and clearer. clearer, I assume, but they'll be essentially what you see in there. They'll be black and white line drawings. Um. So the thing I love about Rovina's illustrations is is they do visually what I try to do in my fiction. It is just they're so evocative. Mm-hmm. They just give you this 
I think if you showed someone a picture that Ravina Kai had done and said, what does it smell like? They'd be able to tell you. They might not have thought about it, but they would have an idea. Mm -hmm. Just because it brings, it evokes so much stuff. So, um, yeah, that's the the physical object and and how delighted I'm pretty sure I will be when I see it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then doing the audio book, that was, I wanted to do that right from the start. Mm-hmm. And basically, I said, I'm not going to sign this contract unless you let me do the audio. And I said, oh, yeah, we probably will. I said, That's no, 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 I need an assurance from you in email with your name on it that I can do this. And I said, okay. So, um, then, But then I had to find a studio yeah. that was wheelchair accessible. But, of course, um, COVID was in full swing at this point, and... And so they had started working um, with an engineer who could actually come to people's homes mm-hmm. and set up a temporary studio. And would I like to do that? And I said, um, I tried to imagine, we have, um, not today because it's Saturday, but uh, all around us we have construction going on right now. How yeah. People are building houses, renovating their houses, uh, and, and, of course, we have two cats who, whenever they see a shut door, they're like, hi, what's behind that? <laughs> and so the thought of, of spending a, a week with with a strange person and all this wiring in the house and everyone being discombobulated and being freaked out about the noise and trying to block out the noise, it just seemed like a non-starter. So yeah. I... Uh, set out on the, the epic trek to find a, an accessible studio here in Seattle. I mean, obviously, that there are accessible studios if you want to pay $250 an hour. Yeah, I was yeah. afraid of. But I, I found a studio that um, is accessible and it's a community. Basically, it's a community cultural center. Um, and they charge $55 an hour, which is actually cheaper than most studios and also and it's just great yeah and i had an excellent time there when you were reading uh when you because i i'd love to hear this even though i don't usually listen to audiobooks but did you surprise yourself at all did you come across a voice that you didn't know what it was going to sound like when you were writing and now you had to think about that Oh, all of it. It is so hard trying to, so, so trying to figure out, for example, what, um, if you imagine that everybody is essentially speaking Britonic, so there's oh, yeah. the, the closest thing we can come to it today is Welsh. So everyone's speaking Welsh, but you've got a Spanish guy speaking Welsh. Mm-hmm. You've got a Greek guy speaking Welsh. You've got a northern guy, like someone from up in Tyneside speaking Welsh, how do they sound? And then you've got your kings and queens, and then you've got your knights, and then you've got your basically your mechanicals, you know, your lower class people. Um, and how do they all sound? It was really difficult coming up I could with that differentiate all that and and then so I worked on it I worked on it for about two weeks I would be rehearsing every day trying to figure it out 
Eventually, I thought, I have cracked this. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I go into the studio. Um, there's my director, and I begin, and she's like, yeah, no, I don't like that voice. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so then I would just rotate the next win, and she'd say, great, but then, then I don't know what to do for the next person because I've already used their voice. <laughs> oh, wow. And then... And she didn't, some of them, she thought, no, they wouldn't sound like that. They need to be much more commanding or they need to be lighter or they need to be louder or faster. But it's the first time I'd ever worked with a director. So, yeah, it was fascinating. I learned a lot, actually. Were you ever tempted to say, well, actually, they should sound like this because I made them up on their mind? Oh, was I attempted to be a real asshole? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, of course, of course I was tempted. Yes, of course I was tempted, but I didn't. <laughs> Does it make you want to do more audiobooks? I love doing audiobooks. I did the audiobook for So Lucky. Yeah, which is. And um, now this. And I'm going to do the audiobook for The Blue Place. Okay. When when that's republished. So, yeah, no, I, I'm i not going to do the audio book for Meanwood because oh it'll probably be about 30 finished hours would be my guess. And that is just, you know, I have MS. I have, I have to be careful with my energy and I would rather spend my energy doing the writing than... <laughs> exhausting myself because <laughs> it's it's very physically exhausting um yeah. reading it, it requires a lot of focus and have you gone back and listened to, to it in its entirety since you completed it no i'm <laughs> i am i'm one of those people that i i can't i used to be in a band so there are some videos of me in a band and i can't watch them yeah I can barely listen to me, but certainly seeing me, I can't. And um, an audio, I, I have never been able to listen to So Lucky. Yeah. I have not listened to that. I just, I can listen to like the first 30 seconds and then I'm like, oh, no. Mm -mm, <laughs> That's great. Perhaps the floor needs cleaning now. Or, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, it makes my toes curl. Well, you've already mentioned Meanwood, which, I, which we've already figured out is a bit longer than Hilled. Mm, it is. Hild is, um, let me see, Hild, when published, was 208,000 words. Mm -hmm. My first draft of Meanwood was 288,000 words. 40% bigger. Um, I have since rewritten it, and it is now 268,000, and I'm awaiting my final edit letter, which may shave a few things and it may mm. add a few things, but mm -hmm. let's say 270, just yeah. you know, for rinse. So yeah, substantially longer. And it's likely coming out, what, sometime next year, probably? Yeah, probably about a year after Spear. So we have bruited about a couple of publication dates and right now it's looking possibly end-ish of April. But uh, so much depends on how edits go mm -hmm. and what other books are coming out at the time. So that's a very tentative date right now. 
but it's yes it's been it's done and, it's done and yeah. I, am, I am so pleased so now i get to do all the cool stuff like start building the glossary and pronunciation <laughs> guide and i have so many maps oh my god you have no idea how many maps i have but the real maps of real places or what once were yes. real places yes i have a i have a real map of a real place for spear too I can I can send you a copy, and I can certainly, perhaps, um, as I have one Zoom background that I've just made specially for all the publicity things I'll be doing in a couple of weeks, mm. which is um, one of the interior illustrations, but in color, mm -hmm. and then the book cover with some swirls behind. But yeah. also, I'm going to do one of just the map mm. behind me, so people can see. In the, I mean, I'm, I'm struck that you really are a historical novel nerd, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I it, turn, it turns out that I love research. I had no yeah. idea. It's actually writing Hild is what what got me to do my PhD. I just found that I loved this whole snarking at people in the footnotes thing. It's amazing. <laughs> I was like, and one of the first time I saw it, I forget what book it was I was reading. One of those Fechtschrifts, I think, um, mm -hmm. where, where lots of people disagree, but they all have to bow down to like the, the Uber notion. And the sniping in the footnotes, it was like, <laughs> it was better than a play. It was like, this is awesome. <laughs> So, yeah, ever since I figured out that you can have fun with footnotes, um, I and I just love research. I love finding yeah. out stuff. I love following my nose around. And I'm curious, wasn't, hasn't Slow River been republished fairly recently? Was, uh, or, am I, or am I thinking of a couple of years ago and thinking it was that recently? No, um, it hasn't been. It was republished in... 2002. Okay. Uh, um, but, yeah. It, the reason I brought it up is that that obviously required research of a completely different sort. That's kind of a science fiction engineering waste map. Because I remember reading it. I remember reviewing it at the time. How did, how did she know so much about waste management, and why is it so interesting? Well, because I was interested in it. I, I think that's really the point, is that, yeah. that if, if, if the author is interested, it's like you can always tell when a writer is having fun with her work. It has a kind of snap and energy to the work. And then you can tell when someone's phoning it in. It's like, and it's comp perfectly competent, but it doesn't sure. sing. It doesn't dance. So with Slow River, um, I was not, the least bit interested in wastewater management mm -hmm. and recycling. But then, um, but Kelly, my wife, was working at an environmental manage environmental managing, yeah, environmental engineering company. Mm. Um, and so she would bring home these catalogs uh, about um, drench hoses and emergency procedures in the case of toxic this or that. Yeah. And I started reading them. And the minute I get my teeth into specifics like that, the di different neoprene hoses and suits and how you actually have to, to use. 
an eye wash to get toxins out of your eyes and how close the stations for that have to be. Um, and then I, I, she was also, so she brought home a couple of magazines, two called Pollution Engineering, and then one was simply called Garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would read, because, you know, I was bored. It just We lived in a place where uh, it was bef- pretty much before internet access, and um, there were no sidewalks and no public transport, and I couldn't drive. So I was, when I wasn't writing, I was bored. It was either that or watch flower arranging on HGTV. You know? So <laughs> I would rather read about garbage. So I would read this stuff. And then I started thinking about um, a holiday I had once in Wales, where I went to a place called Machentleth, which is um, kind of a, an old um, hippie commune meets greens. And, and they were recycling everything. They were even reusing their own waste as fertilizer and they were <clears throat> they had a fish pond and, and it was and so that notion from my early twenties, together with this pollution engineering, together with this question I've been wrestling with personally about how come I escaped this miserable time in this miserable city I was talking about at the mm-hmm. beginning um, and other people didn't? So the, my question was, why are some people able to escape and others aren't? That all came together. Mm-hmm. For so, um, that's, so that's where all that comes from. It's, just struck me that it's, it's, it's a novel that now seems ahead of its time in terms of it, a lot of the issues, and including that issue of escape, escaping from what they now call environmental racism or environmental repression is something that no one was writing about in fiction. And now it seems to be a topic of discussion. Mm -hmm. No, I I would really like to see that book properly republished. Um, It's been in print. It's never been out of print since it was published, but it's very much a, no, most people don't even know it exists. I mean, it sells. I mean, I get my royalty checks twice a year, but it doesn't sell very much. Yeah. And I love that book. I would love to see more people find it. it. I have a very, very soft spot for it. Now, in the in the afterward to Spear, you imply that we may not have seen the last of Peritier. You may be may not be done. And it, it's a good point in the discussion to kind of go, we have Spear coming into the world. We know Meemwood will, and they're going to be reprinting The Blue Place, it sounds like, in its sequels. Mm-hmm. Have you started to turn your mind to, to what comes next? Yes, and my problem is that I have so many things I want to do. I have, I have never published a collection of essays and I've written quite a few essays, mm-hmm. but they're so few and far between. And they're about such different things that it's, it's kind of like my fiction career in that way. They're, they're all over the place, except they all have probably the same kind of concern, which is how, how to make sense of the world through art, I suppose. Um, I would love to see a short story collection published. I've never published a short story collection. I would love to write a sequel to my memoir, but how on earth can you write a sequel 
to something that came in a box with gift <laughs> cards. I don't know. I I really I am contracted to write some Oud short stories to go with yeah. um, the reissuing of of the Oud Torvingen novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I really I I really want to play some more with um, Peretier and Nimue. Um, and in fact, the other day I had this really wacky idea of how to combine mm-hmm. um, an Oud short story with. Uh, a bit more of Peritia, but I don't know if I'll go there, but it, <laughs> yeah, I have some thoughts. And of course, uh, Hild is ever present. So after Memewood, there'll be whatever the next Hild book is. I just don't know. I mean, she lived a long life and I am yeah. falling way behind. We've already got, I don't know half a million words and she's only 21 yeah and it's i i don't want to be writing these books for the next 30 years i just don't so i think i might have to jump ahead eight years or something and go from there but there are all sorts of other ideas i mean there's this big fantasy novel i've been thinking of for years i don't Mm -hmm. know are you familiar with robert silverberg's night wings Mm-hmm. Yeah. Night Flyer, what night? Yeah, I think it's Nightwing. Nightwing. So it was back in the '60s, I think. Yeah, yeah. So there's this. Mm, I'm going to basically steal part of that central conceit about um, kind of a slow virus that freezes people, and marry it with um, a fantasy notion of magic, and and so I have this notion of this sort of alternate history that's basically what if the fall of Rome coincided with the fall of something nasty from the sky? Hmm. How would the world be different? And I so I have so there's that I would love to do as well. There's oh well I have many ideas. Yeah. Where I'm actually going to go, I don't know. <laughs> Because I've got the publicity for Spear coming I guess, up. I guess end. one question that fans of Slow River and Ammonite might have is, do you feel you've left science fiction behind for fantasy, historical fiction, and other things? Oh, I shouldn't think so. Um, I'm not... I Actually, I really couldn't say. I, I uh, The most recent short story I wrote, it was a very short story. Um, it was only a thousand words was it was science fiction that came out in 2019 mm-hmm. it was um in a an anthology that Nalo edited for um the Dia Arts Foundation um so it was in support of a an art installation called particulates mm-hmm. um, and it was well, basically <laughs> sorry go on no, I was going to say, it sounds like there is more before you to do than you could possibly almost hope to get done. It must be exciting in a way to be able to sit there and go, oh, it's I thrilling. have this. It is thrilling. It's, it's disturbing in the sense that uh, I have all these planes circling in my head and I am not going to bring them all into land. There will not be time. Some are just going to run out of fuel and crash and burn. Some will just kind of evaporate, vanish. Sure. 
And then every now and again, something will just arrow in from out of the blue and I'll be like, that one. And it's it's hard to tell. And that's one of the things I love about writing. Yeah. The fact that I never know where it's going to go. And I think even better, um, you can never, ever get good enough at it. There's always yeah. room for it to be better. Yeah. I love that. Well, on that note, we're, we're through our hour, so we should probably wind up. And with that in mind, first of all, a reminder, if we haven't told everybody enough that, and we'll put links in the show notes, that Spear is out there to order in hardcover and ebook and audiobook in about two weeks. I think it's April the 13th it comes out. 19th. April, 19th, April the 19th it comes out. Uh, so that's out there in the world that obviously Hild and the previous novels are out there. And there's a lot of things to be doing, but for the moment, Thank you very much, Nicola Griffith, for making the time to talk to us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Lovely as always. And until next week, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.